so I just found Japanese beetles all over the place. And you know, I was frustrated too, because I had just started gardening at the time as well. So yeah, here are Japanese beetles. I look them up. Hey, I can eat them. Okay, how? You know, you boil them. You gotta cook your insects all the time. You're not just out here munching bugs. So if I'm not flavoring them for like bug popcorn, which sounds disgusting, but everyone who's ever been very squeamish and just really cringing and they could barely get their hand to grab one, once they finally get in their mouth and they crunch down on it, they realize it's lightly crispy, it's barely there. You get hit instantly with the flavors that you realize that, you know, it tastes good. And they always want another one. Suddenly when you break that threshold, it's, it's broken forever. You, you are totally down to eat bugs. Welcome to The Open Air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories about how we can live a happier, healthier, more creative life outdoors. My guest today is Tim Clements, who goes by the name MN Forager on Instagram, where he is known for his educational posts on all things related to harvesting wild food, be it plants, mushrooms, or insects, and often in an urban setting. Today we dig into the practice of urban foraging, the art of eating insects, or entomophagy, Tim's first ever hunting experience, and what happens when you move from observer of nature to participant in nature, and how that's informing a new nature ethos. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado, Tim Clements. All right, welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Yeah, this is um, kind of special. It's our first episode recorded outside, which is so fitting for this show, right? It so is, and it's going to be a better location. Yes, we're here at the Open Air Outpost recording Open Air Humans. It's a long time coming, and it's meant to be. Um, glad you could be here. Um, I think I've, I've been following you know you and, and what you do and your work online on pri- primarily your Instagram page, MN Forager, for a couple of years, and I, I don't know any other page that's had me laughing out loud so much. Um, the memes and, and jokes and things that you post that are, you know, um, of course, foragers and just people that are, I don't know, nature geeks, maybe that's the term. Sure. Um, get a, I'm sure get a kick out of it um, more than most. But oh my gosh, it's just so much fun. And I've, I've learned a lot too, just uh, following everything you do. And, um, you know, I've I thought you'd be a really fun guest to have on the show for a number of reasons. Like I want to get into foraging, but I also know, um, you know, we have a lot of the same values in terms of um, the, the concept of free loose sleeve and, um, you know, thermal cycling. I know you're a cold, cold plunger, cold exposure, um, but I'd love to start with and spend most of our time on, on foraging today. And, you know, one of the things we've, we've had a few episodes where we've got into foraging and what the benefits of it are and the joy of it. Um, but it's a, a lot of it's been focused on going out into nature and, you know, looking for something specific, which is a blast, right? It's like a treasure hunt and you get to new places. But I know you do a lot of urban foraging and offer urban foraging classes. Um, I'd love it if you could introduce us, you know, to that concept of like, what are you finding right there in the city? And um, 
what does that mean to be able to just like dip in and do it while you're going about your business if you're an urban dweller? Yeah, absolutely. So I am from Minneapolis, born and raised. So that is where I started my foraging journey. I didn't really get to a state park until I was probably 23 or 24. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I did go to some YMCA camps as a child, but that's about it. And I wasn't foraging then, really. So, um, yeah, I guess my main thrust is that you do not have to go out there to get to nature. Nature's all around you. It It's under the cement. Uh, it's poking through the cracks. <laughs> it's along the golf course fence line. It's in the parking lot of a gas station that has service berries growing there. Uh, you can... You can be a total tourist uh, where you call home. The streets you walk every day, the park you walk your dog at, if you start seeing what's around you in a completely new way, uh, there's going to be a lot there for you. That's awesome. It's funny. I, you know, I grew up in, the, I was a country kid, grew up in the country, moved to Minneapolis, lived there 20 years, moved back out in the country when you had two young boys and um, loved that experience and wanted it for him. But I still have a city uh, office. I have an office in Minneapolis and it's now after I moved away and, you know, during the pandemic really went down the foraging rabbit hole, I come back and I'm like, oh, there's a bunch of milkweed in my office yard. I didn't realize. And oh, there's some lamb's quarter in it. Like I had to go away and now I come back and I'm seeing the urban landscape with new eyes too. So it's yeah, funny it's really, how that works. It's really one of abundance. Everyone yeah. treats it like, like it's one of scarcity and actually like it's a place that you have to feel, uh, you have to have a grudge against almost. You have to look at the cement and say, oh, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? The parking lot is there, and I know I'm not going to be able to change it or most likely won't be able to, but I can look around the edge, and I can find the beauty in that. And you can look at, you know, I'd say most parks in the metro area, they used to be farms or factories or something like that maybe Mm -hmm. 150 years ago, and we can't even tell anymore. So nature can always make a comeback, but there has to be that connection and that desire to have nature there, which... Hey, urban foraging is the perfect vehicle for that, in my opinion. What are some of the plants and mushrooms that you find in the city that you encourage people, like if they're just starting out and want to look in the city, what are you looking for typically? Yeah, some of the most entry-level things are wood sorrel, which Mm -hmm. tastes very sour and delicious. A lot Mm -hmm. of children oftentimes have it as their their child uh, plant culture, like They'll call it candy plant or tartweed, and it's just their own names that they made up. My boys call them juicies. Oh, and, juicies, And actually, yeah. that was Sam Thayer. He told me when he was a kid, he called them that. So I That's started awful. introducing that name, and it's stuck. Like, the kids love it. Oh, juicies. And I, I also told them it'll give them a little popper energy. So now anytime they're, like, running around, they're like, I need juicies. Nice. <laughs> so that's, like, a great entry one for sure. It's so refreshing, too. Yeah. If you do, if you are a little bit thirsty and you, you know, take a bite of those, it does refresh you completely. Yeah. Um. And then that leads into, say, clover. You know, it's you know not the white clover in everyone's lawn isn't a native here, but it is a cool plant to say, oh, hmm, you know, how I draw clover maybe isn't really how it looks most of the time. It's only sometimes heart-shaped leaves, and the wood sorrel actually has the heart-shaped leaves. And so then you're starting to see plants for how they're similar and different to each other. And that starts knocking down what's called the green wall. Mm-hmm. which is the inanimate backdrop for human activity that I think most nature enthusiasts that aren't foragers or don't engage with nature in a specific way think that's all nature is. Mm-hmm. Is It's a calming green and brown space for me to hear strange sounds and smell flowers. And, you know, that's that's as deep as people will ever go. Yeah. You know, but once you start seeing, say, the service berries and you have an, maybe an underripe one for the first time, you're like, huh. Not nothing to write home about, but then you wait and you have one that's 
maybe getting purple and a little wrinkly, and then it's a flavor blast in your mouth, and then it changes your life. Yeah, you know. So that's the experience, the hands-on experience that I try to give, you know, urban dwellers that they might not be getting otherwise. Mm-hmm. Are there any other like sort of best practices to keep in mind, whether that's where you're looking in a city, where you shouldn't look in a city that you think about when you're when you're in those spaces? Totally, there's plenty, right? Like any heavily modified human environment, you want to watch out for certain things like, let's say, heavy metal exposure. So you do want to figure out if something, if an area that you're harvesting from is a Superfund site. And a Superfund site is just an impaired, uh, a government-regulated impaired area. And it's typically like, say, arsenic or lead, things like Mm. that, that have polluted the environment. Maybe it used to be a factory or something. So you don't want to harvest from there, or you only want to harvest certain things. So you don't want to harvest roots or leaves from there, but hey, maybe you can harvest fruits because plants are actually really good at excluding heavy metals from their reproductive tissues. Um, and then, hey, you want to avoid the dog zone. Right. So, <laughs> hey, maybe don't forage right next to that fire hydrant, even though the wood soil is going to be huge there because of all the pee, <laughs> which has nitrogen. Right. It has, the op- it has the opposite of what you'd think the effect would be, right? That helps them right. grow bigger. And, yeah. And then, you know, but you're, you're going to smell dog pee and you're typically going to see dog poop. It's not falling from the sky to rain on everything you love and right, hold dear. Right. You can eat food outside that hasn't been, you know, pooped on. Right, <laughs> A right. lot of people don't think that, though. Uh, but that's good to be cautious. It's always good to, like, operate from caution and then move into being bolder later. Because sometimes if you, you're too bold right off the bat, you don't get the chance to be cautious later if you eat the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then avoid herbicides. It's, that's going to be difficult to initially tell what's been sprayed unless it has one of those very useful green signs from like true green or something like that but uh, you are going to want to avoid you know heavily manicured areas and such and that's just a skill you learn over time so where are some of the places that you do tend to go to first or oh well not like specifically but the types of places yeah the types of places i first went to just uh, you know speaking from my own journey which is i think is the best place to speak from is you know when i was a child i would just go down alleyways in Minneapolis with mm. my identical twin. We were feral children, so uh. wouldn't come home till nighttime, you know, we'd barefoot terrorize the neighborhood. And so we would find raspberries uh. in the in the alleyways. And that's a great place to start. Raspberry, okay. As a grocery store counterpart. Right. Pretty right. familiar with this. <laughs> uh eat it a couple times. Hey, I didn't die. You know? <laughs> uh or my twin eats it and he's fine. So I'm gonna try it, you know? Um and then maybe you wanna go to the local park, you know, say Minneapolis, if you're at um, any Minneapolis park board park, maybe you want to look at a tree that has fruit or nuts mm-hmm. or berries on it. And those are legal to harvest uh, in Minneapolis. So maybe acorns or black walnuts too, if you want to check those out. Nice. So you mentioned you were doing this since you were a little kid. Were there any moments um, that were pivotal? I mean, you mentioned the service barrier, like Maybe it wasn't that you knew you just wanted to do more of it, but you're actually teaching classes. Like, when did you know, like, I want to introduce people to this practice? It wouldn't be until my early 20s uh, when I was in college and I was very directionless. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had a degree in anthropology or I was about to earn one that I didn't really see a future in. In fact, they had a presentation that said, hey, don't go to grad school. There's no jobs. <laughs> no. And so... I really had to figure something out right at the finish line. And it just so happened, you know, I found I fell in love with nature through, I was taking Ojibwe language classes ah. at the time. And my teacher, Peibam Mibinais, uh, Dennis Jones, uh, he really introduced me to um, sugar bush and making maple syrup. 
okay. and so sitting out there and watching water boil you know you slowly lose your mind a little bit over the weeks long <laughs> maple season um but you also have time to think and look at things in a new way so i saw the maple trees and we're tapping those we're interacting with those but then i saw other trees okay those are basswood trees you tell me oh we're not tapping those why oh can they be used for anything yes we make the maple sugar trough out of that mm. and that's how we make maple sugar and stirring that all in a teamwork fashion okay well hey what is this plant that's still green poking through the snow oh it's garlic mustard what's that about i know garlic and i know mustard but not this and so it just started snowballing and i realized it added rich texture to every part of my existence you know thought travel food hiking it all just took on a completely new level and then multiple levels under that yeah no i i identify with that so much i mean learning a lot from alan Vergo directly um during the pandemic when we were making our our show um field forest feast like now every year like i there's a relationship you develop and i like wait for these old friends to arrive you know whether that's plants or mushrooms like oh who's coming out next week that i haven't seen since last year um but also traveling too like having just gotten back from alaska yesterday like i'm looking closer at the landscape than i used to when i traveled i would just go and we would do the thing the activities and whatever but now i'm like kind of studying the flora and you're like wow here's how this is really different or here's the plant that I oh we have this too or oh this is new to me and it just deepens the experience of travel in a way that I didn't expect either absolutely it can turn anywhere into you know this exotic place yeah right? I mean I remember my first wild blueberry I had because of Sam Thayer our mutual friend yes and I remember eating it and realizing that despite blueberries being amazing and having them my whole life I had never really had the experience the blueberry experience and that meant standing in a field of sweet fern oh god so fragrant and That's delicious my favorite smell in the world yeah. that and lilac are just like they're amazing i'm like i want to stuff my pillows with sweet fern yeah absolutely <laughs> and sleep on that it's so incredible yeah having that having a sweet fern shade cover over your bin of uh blueberries it subtly infuses the the now sweaty blueberries with that sweet fern mm. flavor and you just realize Hey, have I ever tasted a blueberry before? Not, not like this. And that just, that's in Wisconsin. You know, Minneapolis, you don't think of Wisconsin as being exotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's unrivaled experiences to have two hours away instead of thinking that, oh, I have to go to like a different continent or a right. tropical country or something. Right. No, I promise you, you're going to have those experiences right here. Right. Yeah, I remember when Alan first took me to Pine Barrens, which is probably the same spot because he learned it from from Sam and just like stepping out of the vehicle and it's just, you're wafted with sweet fern and like you're inhaling that as you're picking the berries and it makes it an entirely different experience. Yeah. Um, Because you're experiencing the whole little ecosystem that is that place that's different than anywhere else. Absolutely. Um, Well, you know, fruit is a great place to start and really fun, but it's August and mushrooms are really coming out. Um, let's talk about mushrooms. We're going to put this episode out pretty quick here. So a lot of, I think, what's in season now will still be. Um, what's your experience? Did you come to mushrooms later? And like, what do you like, what do you love looking for in mushrooms or what do you love about mushrooms? Yeah, my progression was plants and then mushrooms. And of course, I started my mushroom journey like a lot of people do. Um, I saw them out side but i knew i probably shouldn't eat any just because i thought maybe they were i should probably thought all of them were deadly mm-hmm. but i knew maybe some of them were edible 
And so I just decided to dive in. And of course, I got the biggest book at the library possible yeah. and brought it out. And immediately I found a red capped Russell uh-huh. Which anybody who knows mushroom hunting knows it is very hard to tell those apart, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. And so that stifled me. So I had a false start with mushroom hunting for probably about six months. Okay. Um, I said, wow, this is maybe above me. Maybe I can't learn this. But then I um, dove back in, and I realized, hey, this is something I can learn a little bit at a time. And, yeah, then I just started going outside more, and that's really what it took. And what were the, the first few mushrooms that you're like, okay, this is for me. This is fun. This so is delicious. So the first one I had that I didn't pick myself, though, was a hen of the woods. And mm. it, was a, it was a wild harvested one, not a, a cultivated one. And I cooked that up and delicious. So profoundly strong that I really understood mushrooms for the first time, that they could taste like what a mushroom savoriness meant. Because I'd had white button mushrooms my right. whole life. And they're good. Don't get me wrong. I really like those. But this one hit it home in a new way. Yep. And then the first one I ever found and cooked myself was shaggy mane. Oh, yeah. The little lawn-growing inky cap that uh-huh. if you let go a little bit too long, it turns into that black ink. Um, and that was I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I can, I can do this. I did it. So then it started that power process where you're like, hey, I trust myself to learn something new and account for what I don't know as well and then safely eat a mushroom. And hey, I survived. Maybe I could do that again with another species and keep this going. And I mean, th- this weekend, just around here, there's so many bull eats everywhere. This is bull eat central. I've never seen this many before. This is perfect. So for people who don't know, can you explain what bull eats are as a family? Oh yeah, a bull eat is a mushroom that has a cap and a stem, like your typical mushroom, but instead of gills underneath the cap, it's gonna have this kind of spongy tube layer that looks like little holes, like little holes in a sponge on the underside. Although not to confuse you, there is one of them that does have gills. Right. It, it had gills and then it evolved the spongy tube layer. And then it was like, wait a minute, gills are actually pretty cool. Let me re-evolve that again. So that's the gilled bolete. That's always a surprise when you find that one. And one mushroom that probably most people know and love, if you like mushrooms, the porcini is of this family. So I think that's, oh, yeah. what, that's what got me into that family. Like, oh, I need to study this family. Yeah, the porcini is awesome. You know, I'm not a huge fan of bolets, honestly, but I haven't had a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also not a good cook, so there's that, too. <laughs> I love mushrooms, go figure, a lot more when, say, Alan makes them than when I make them myself. Sure, sure. Um, when you're doing classes this time of year, um, what type of mushrooms are you bringing people to look for? All kinds. I think I think overall I cover probably 300 different species. Oh, wow. Maybe a little bit more. I'm not sure. But... We're coming home with hedgehogs, chanterelles, black mm. pits, chicken of the woods, lobsters, um, you know, beef bouillon bowl eats, curry bowl eats, old man of the woods, although some people don't like that, not me being one of them. Yeah, I've um, seen those and never had the courage to eat one. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of, honestly, they taste like mothballs. Okay. <laughs> I did not enjoy it at all, but there are people that swear they love them. Oh, funny. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not one to yuck other people's yum. Well, I know you you hunt you know you do classes on plants, mushrooms, but it doesn't stop there. Um, you have bug hunting classes. And yeah, you're <laughs> eating insect and practicing what's the word again? Entomophagy. Entomophagy. Yes, the eating of insects. Let's go there. Tell me how you got down that path and and what that's like in Minneapolis. Yeah, this is my I'd say my third progression. So I went from plants to mushrooms to bugs. Because I decided, hey, if I can eat plants outside and I can eat mushrooms outside, what's to say I can't eat bugs? So I found a pretty cool Facebook group to learn from, and that that Facebook group no longer exists, unfortunately. Um, 
But one of the things I found in that group was that you can eat Japanese beetles, an extremely invasive, non-native um, beetle that eats basically everything we do, and definitely everything we grow in our gardens. So it's a direct competitor, and it's in a kind of a small edible scarab. It's actually quite beautiful if it wasn't destroying everything. Hmm. Is it uh, like it's got a really bright col- um, color that when you turn it, it almost looks it's a scint- scintillating. scintillating? Yeah, like okay. uh, has this. You can't decide what color it is depending on how the light hits it. Sometimes it's very copper colored, sometimes it's black, purple, green, and has these white dots down both sides, three dots down both sides. The colors of insects just continually blow my mind. I don't know if you saw the book in in there, Biophilia, but this yeah. artist, like, oh my gosh, like he arranges just the colors of plants, insects, sea creatures, everything, and you just it makes you realize like how insanely beautiful, all, like all of nature's, if you just like look a little bit closer. And I think insects are one where it's like, when you really look closer, you're like, what is this alien creature with these colors? It's incredible. Yeah, they're they're little gems. Yeah, they're little jewels. Um, and yeah, so I just found Japanese beetles all over the place. Had just started gardening at the time as well, so brand new frustration in my life. <laughs> Obviously, joy as well. But I think any gardener knows that being vexed multiple times a season by some brand new thing you couldn't have even known about uh, is going to happen. So. Yeah, here are Japanese beetles. I look them up. Hey, I can eat them. Okay, how? You know, you boil them. You got to cook your insects all the time. You're not just out here munching bugs because they can have parasites (laughs) just like meat or anything like that. So you want to exercise food safety. And you know what? They don't really taste like anything either. You you dry them in a marinade that you want them to taste like, whether that's a candy, whether that is a Thai Cajun mix or Mm. some sort of garlic cumin or whatever, tequila lime. And then you dry them, and they just are like popcorn that tastes like whatever. So they offer texture above anything else. Texture really. and protein. Texture and protein. Yeah, they got they have protein. Yeah, it's about twenty three grams per hundred grams, so about the same as steak. Okay. And so, how are you? Are you having these by themselves as a snack? Putting them on foods? Like, obviously, there's a great culinary tradition in Mexico. Like, are you taking inspiration from that, or how are you using these? I do take inspiration from that for sure. Um, in my own culinary adventures, though, it's pretty simple. Uh, I make them into a powder. If I, so if I'm not flavoring them for like bug popcorn, mm-hmm. which sounds disgusting, but everyone who's ever been very squeamish and just really cringing and they could barely get their hand yeah. to grab one, yeah. <laughs> once they finally get it in their mouth and they crunch down on it, they realize it's lightly crispy. It's barely there. You get hit instantly with the flavors that you realize that you know it tastes good and they always want another one. Ah. Suddenly when you break that threshold, it's... It's broken forever. You, ah. you are totally down to eat bugs. I think it's a lot of people who've never tried one that are the biggest opponents of it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, if you don't want to do that at all, which you don't have to, you can grind them up into like a beetle powder and put them in baked goods. I make scones that you couldn't even tell they're in there, but I have to tell people they're in there because I think if somebody has a shellfish allergy, they could have potentially mm. a reaction. Okay. Yeah. So Japanese beetle scones. Yeah. I've never heard of that. That's protein amazing. Packed. Wow. Protein pack scones. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah. I, um, you know, I've had the the crickets, the chipolines, I think it is, you know, in the Mexican tradition, you know, that gives a little crunch to your taco or whatever it might be. And then entamoles, the antics, which had this incredible lemony flavor and also offered texture very different, of course, from the dried beetles. Oh, they're lemony? But... I had no idea. I've been yeah. wanting to try them forever, but I had really no concept of what they would taste like, I guess. Yeah, I got well, a lemony flavor. Yeah. Yeah, and I haven't eaten ants, just the ant eggs. I'm sure I'll get there 
someday to try ants, just haven't had an opportunity, haven't collected them. Cool. A lot of the ants up here will taste like grapes. Oh, wow. And sometimes that's like good, strongly of grape. And then sometimes it's a very, you got to squint kind of to taste the grape. It's more like a muskiness that, mm. that is sometimes unenjoyable. I haven't nailed down the species yet too well. Hmm. I know they're all edible and just it's uh, mileage may vary on taste. Okay, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, it's interesting. One of the one of the other things I saw that you posted about that struck a, a note with me um, that we haven't talked about on this podcast before is harvesting animals, hunting, wild game. Um, you know, foraging is right next, right adjacent. But I think there are a lot of foragers that haven't crossed that threshold to hunting. Maybe they fish, but they haven't hunted. Um, I grew up with that, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, there's a huge culture around deer hunting, especially, right? And other, other birds. My dad's a huge outdoorsman, hunter, fisherman. So I got firsthand experience of that from a very young age, tried it, wasn't like super drawn to it, kind of left it. And I came back to it after having kids. I think it was initially more for like philosophical reasons, like bringing a new human into the world. What are the value sets that are going to be conveyed? And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be eating meat, I need to be able to harvest that myself. I wanted to be able to harvest it myself. So I said, okay, I'm going to try this again. If if it works, I'm going to keep eating meat. If I don't want to harvest or can't harvest the animal, I'm going to stop eating meat for a while and see. Mm-hmm. Harvested the animal, kept eating meat, and was really happy I did. Um, it plugged me back in to the natural world in a way that I didn't anticipate. I think the same way that foraging for plants and mushrooms did, uh, moving from observer to participant and how harvesting makes you a participant of a ecosystem we've been part of since there were humans on earth. And it, 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 um, it, it, it changed something in, in my mindset. Um, and so that's how I came back to it. But I, I wanna talk about, I think you did, you had your first hunt, was it boar? It was. Tell me about, well, first of all, tell me about the decision to hunt an animal as opposed to an insect or a plant or mushroom. And then what was that experience like? I didn't have the same reasons as you, but I really like your reasons. And those are some of my reasons now, just listening Mm -hmm. to those. But I absolutely wanted to be someone who took responsibility for what I was doing whenever I ate meat. Um, You know, I really like pork chops. That's one of my favorite foods. <laughs> Nothing like a double-cut Berkshire pork chop oh, man. with, like, blueberry sauce on it. You know, I love those. And I realized, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I'm all about getting closer to my food. I even teach other people. So what am I doing not taking responsibility for this? I, I know these pigs are out there being raised and slaughtered, and I'm thankful to those people, but I need to take it a step further. I need to be a participant. And so I took that into this hunt for wild boar. You know, I had a certain sort of rational calculus that I applied that was, hey, this is an invasive species, which I learned from getting into plants and mushrooms. I said, okay, this is a non-native invasive species. It's destroying ecology where it is. It's also destroying farmland. You know, they can eat 15 acres of peas overnight. And then that's destroying farmers' livelihood too. But ultimately, it despite that intellectualization of it um and that's what you know brought me there and that's what made me plan everything and finally lead up to the moment when i was standing about 20 yards away from that pig and it had quartered away from me and anybody who doesn't know what that means that means it had turned away from me and exposed behind its front leg 
and that's where you want to shoot your arrow and to hopefully get the lungs but also hopefully get the heart because you want to get the quickest kill possible you don't want to wound an animal you want to die as fast as possible to reduce its suffering despite the rationale i had the emotional moment of choosing to let go of my arrow and to see it hit to hear it hit the animal and to see the animal stagger and fall and it had you know a rough 90 seconds it was a really good shot had about 90 seconds i i stopped and, and it was making its sounds so it was screaming and i i found myself shying away from it and i was like oh man what do i do because i didn't have any you know uh, lead up to this in my life i ran over a raccoon one time and I cried. <laughs> I was at like 90, 90 miles per hour going to Montana and I ran over a raccoon. And so I'd never killed anything before and I realized that my shying away from it was, from the sounds and the reality, was the worst thing I could do in that moment. Hmm. I needed to go over, so I went over to her, it was a female pig, and I knelt down and petted her, you know? and Because that I guess that's just I'm taking, that's my way of engaging with animals. Mm-hmm heretofore and yeah the blood was getting on my hands and it was bubbly because I had hit her lungs and that's something I, I saw and you know she gradually got weaker and, and passed away and then carried her out you know processed her and then we went on to get more pigs that that weekend but having you, you can't even listening to this story if you were able to put yourself in say my shoes or you've heard a hunter talk about it and you're able to put yourself in their shoes it's completely different when you're actually there mm-hmm. you cannot hear a compelling story and merely go on the power of suggestion you you have to do mm-hmm. you have to transform yourself into the participant that's any transformative experience you can think about it as much as you want but you are thinking about it with the brain of the person who is the not doer mm-hmm. or yet to do mm-hmm you're you're changed fundamentally after the fact once you do any anything and, and particularly yeah taking a life for the first time mm-hmm. so yeah it uh i gave thanks for the animal and i think it will be something i continue to do hopefully going for a deer this year mm-hmm. um, but still not very comfortable with it not fully like i don't take pleasure in it but i i take pleasure in the culmination of a good hunt and a quick kill Mm-hmm. and using the food and knowing where it comes from. Right. I mean, that's huge. There are, like you said, there are those intellectual or philosophical reasons that are many, right? I mean, especially with factory farming and, you know, everyone wants to reduce their carbon footprint. I mean, that's a big part of it too, like where your protein, where your meat is coming from. Um, you know, farm-raised animal or wild game is a very different thing in that equation too. Um, in terms of how it feels like, you know, harvesting plants and mushrooms, it's obviously not the same thing, but do you feel it's plugging you into any sort of tradition? I mean, how did, how did you react to, like, how is that a very human experience? Did you feel any of that or was not that not even part oh, of it? Oh, absolutely. We, you and I and everybody listening here, we are from an unbroken line of foragers and hunters. And not only that, these were good enough foragers and good enough hunters that that we are here that we are here <laughs> right that's powerful you are literally connected to an unbroken line of three million years of people 
That's powerful. People tried their hardest to survive so you could be here. You know, so that also gives me gratitude. Um, so when I was out, you know, stalking the hogs and you could smell them on the breeze, that was wild to me. Because, you know, every once in a while, maybe you smell like some flowers on the breeze and it's an enjoyable experience, or you smell maybe, if you're lucky, some uh, mushrooms on the breeze. You get some licorice or the, the apricots of chanterelles, mm. you know. To smell the animal I was searching for but couldn't see yet, it just turned on something in my brain. I felt my awareness to my footsteps in every second. Every little twig I stepped on, I was conscious of if it was going to break under my foot or if it wasn't, every muscle in my body I was extremely in tune with. And so I can easily now extrapolate how an ancient human, any one of our previous ancestors felt and why there's such powerful traditions towards that and why right. there's you know, male initiation rites right. for becoming a man, making your first kill, why that's so important because that is the humanizing experience. Right. That have you have you really made that jump before you've figured out actually what it takes to be alive? Right. The other um, concept of how you know when you engage in that act become a participant that I find really interesting to think about and 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 how you know the process makes you feel and and has come up in debate you know not just about I mean there's always been the debate with non hunters and hunters and um, the idea of conservation, right? And especially in plants and mushrooms, and there's something happening right now in Minnesota with mushrooms. Um, and I think it, it links up to this idea that somehow, you know, harvesting is a disregard when in fact, often the opposite is true. When you harvest something, you take the time to learn about it. You have gratitude, like you said, gratitude. You have gratitude for it. And once you get to know it, you develop a reciprocal relationship. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about reciprocity in the reciprocal relationship and how actually harvesting can lead to stronger conservation ethos. Yeah, totally. I think it was, yeah, Yule Gibbon said something like this. He said, nature is his church and the, the wild plants he eats are his communion with the author of that nature. And I could not agree more. It's you see nature as a this inanimate backdrop to walk your dog or mountain bike or run or just to traverse territory to get to a view or get exercise, that's great, but you're missing it. You need to smell the plants, touch the plants, and see that you're surrounded by your relatives in the most literal way. You know, we are on a planet where we're the only life that exists as far as we know, and until that changes... We are the rarest substance on in the universe. There's whole planets of gold. I mean, one of Saturn's moons literally rains diamonds. We think on a diamond core. So the person sitting next to you, your hand at the end of your arm, is the rarest thing that has ever existed, we think. You know, you have the leave-no-trace nature ethic, which, at least in the United States, we hold as the highest nature ethic. And it's my opinion that leave-no-trace will do just that it will leave no trace of nature over the next few hundred years if we follow that it is a tool that was used and very successfully used to have our public lands survive a very turbulent and exploitative time economically as this 
country grew. But when you treat nature as a museum, it can only be this thing that is intellectualized. It, mm. it doesn't allow you to be a participant. Or the parts that you think you're participating in nature, again, you're doing those activities. You're not actually engaging or being anything more than an observer, really. When you start harvesting, say, acorns, or you, or, and then you find maybe a chanterelle patch underneath that acorn tree, hmm. suddenly you think, huh, you know, humans are a questioning animal. Anytime we get an answer to something, we get more questions than answers. And so you're going to start asking yourself questions like, hey, what is that? What is that? And you're going to learn. So we're also a learning animal. So once you start eating those chanterelles and maybe you make uh, some pancakes out of those acorns, then maybe, hey, you found a mushroom that's not a chanterelle, but hmm, it smells fruity too, but whoa, it's going to look more different. It's a hedgehog. It's a cousin hmm. to chanterelles. Wait, so it grows under oak too? Wait, what's this little black one? You're not telling me, yep, that's a cousin of both of those. That's black trumpets. Then you start seeing that this is all connected. It is a magnificent border overlying a chaos that is nearly incomprehensible. But that's the transcendent there. You're butting up right against the more than human, the more than now. And I think everybody needs that to some degree, however you find it. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, if someone is uh, wants to go on this journey, you show people how to get started. How can people experience that with you? Yeah, I do. I started a company called Ironwood Foraging, and that is based in Minneapolis. I take people within an hour or so of Minneapolis, and we do, most importantly, hands-on foraging workshops, so plant and mushroom identification bug hunts, maple syrup making. So I have been told now, you know, I've been doing this full time for three years and going on three years now, people have come back and said, hey, you changed my life. What I do now, you know, harvesting wild rice and, you know, with my family, harvesting berries. Hey, American plums are my favorite thing ever. Mm. Can't can't believe those exist. Right. You know, Um, it's obviously worth it. I knew because it saved me and it healed me, but it can heal you as well. Amazing. Well, and even if you're not going to sign up for class, go for the memes. I'm telling you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Come for the memes. They're, they're the unhinged. They, you know, I definitely try to give you a lot of looks. Uh, if you don't understand a meme, you're just called to further understanding. You'll get it someday. Amazing. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think we should put the recipe for Japanese beetle scones in the notes too, because that's okay, pretty definitely. pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, thanks for, for being here today. Thanks for coming out to the outpost. Thank you for having me. It's been beautiful. To enjoy a dose of Tim's laugh out loud worthy nature themed memes, follow him on Instagram at mnforager, or to learn more about his classes, or even take one yourself head over to ironwoodforaging.com. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great. 
and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.